Yeah, she'll teach you how to be artistically you. Not afraid to talk about what's taboo. So don't play small. Join the podcast with Nikki Collins. Autism Unmasked. Welcome to this week's show with Vicky Midwood, the addiction eliminator who is an expert in anxiety, alcohol, food, and gut issues. Welcome to the show, Vicky. Thank you so much for joining us. I know that you've personally helped me so much on my own journey with alcohol over the last couple of years, and you are just brilliant. So welcome to the show, and tell, tell, tell us a little bit about you, Vicky. Thank you so much for having me, Nikki. Yes, so, uh, well, I am, as I say, the alcohol food gut and really brain expert and uh and this is why I can help people to to get free um and realize that actually doesn't have to be as hard as we think it might be if we can change the language and if we can understand that if you're addicted to anything whether it's a phone or shopping or gambling or food or sex or whatever it happens to be it it's nothing wrong with you is how your brain is working and this is what I help people to understand because it's nothing to do with willpower and it's nothing about being a weak person or out of control. It's about you actually understanding how your body works. And what I've learned over the years is that I didn't really have a clue at all about how my body works fully. And the majority of people don't. And the problem with, with a lot of help out there that, that people assume is the right way to go for alcohol issues or, or food or any addiction issues is, is down the road of, of talking therapy, which is great because it's really helpful. But you also have to understand how physiologically your body works. You have to understand how your body works and it's not exactly the same as somebody else's. And, and that's the bit that makes me a little bit different because I help people to make the connection fully between their gut, their brain, and what they're actually putting into their body in terms of food or alcohol, anything that's digestible, but also in terms of what are you watching, what are you reading, what are you listening, or what environments are you in? And and if you miss any of those out, it's going to be hard, and it doesn't have to be. Yeah, I know. Just picking up from the what are you watching, when I've watched certain programs on TV, and I've woken up the next day, and I'm in the awful mood and I get really depressed so I have to be so careful about what I watch I mean things like the news I haven't watched for years because it's just programmed to produce fear yeah but it is amazing and one of the things that you actually said to me I think a couple of years ago when I first spoke to you about my journey with alcohol was catching these things before they start screaming so when there are a whisper in your ear and that's when you can start to actually like make changes before it gets out of control so it's it's amazing it's amazing and this I think this is something that when when we talk about however you think about thinking and let's face it most of us don't really think about what we think We, we just think it but we don't really think about it we kind of accept it as true and and it's usually not. And often the thoughts that we think are automated, the stuff that we've always thought. Absolutely. But we think in words and we think in the language that we talk and that we've heard 
from around us that we've grown up with. And we have interpretations and perceptions of what certain things mean. And all of that's going on in, in our brain without us being fully conscious of it. And so when stuff comes in, we think we can't control our thoughts, but you are the thinker of the thoughts. You think them. Nobody else thinks them. Nobody plants them in there. It might feel as if they do. But once you actually start to become aware of your thoughts, you can then go, ah, is that actually true? Is it actually helpful? And instead of doing what a lot of people do, and that's try and push it away, which never works because what you resist persists. It'll just come back stronger and it'll come back louder. And that's why I said to you, catch it when it's a, a whisper, because if you try and push it away or ignore it, it'll start to get a bit shouty. Yeah. And if you still keep pushing it away and ignoring it, it'll get really shouty. And then eventually it will start screaming at you. And if you still don't listen, there will be something that happens that will make you listen. What, whatever that happens to be. And fortunately for me, you know, that's what happened to me. And, it, and it, I ha had no choice but to make some changes. Now, for a lot of people, they never get to that point. And they're having this constant battle. And when people talk to me about battling, it's like, if you just surrender, stop battling. Because if you're trying to fight something, it's going to fight back. If you just go, I'm hearing you. So what do you want me to do? Right. Then you can go. Ah, right. OK. Now I can actually look at things slightly differently. But to be able to do that on your own, pretty damn near impossible. Just because you're too close. You need to take a yeah. step back. And it's so much easier to see these things when you're from the outside looking in. Exactly. And we genuinely believe and, and everybody that I work with genuinely believes that, that these thoughts just just come in and they have no control. What we forget is. The way that we think, the way that we speak, everything that we perceive to be true in our lives is based upon the programming that started when we were in our mum's tummy. Exactly. Right. And so it is going into your subconscious brain. And when you're a baby, yes, you haven't got the power of, of conscious reasoning yet because your brain's still developing. But this stuff is all going in. And what, what I help people to understand is that your conscious brain is the part of your brain where you can choose to let in something or not. You can go, no, that's ridiculous. I'm not listening to that, right? But once you have accepted it into your unconscious brain, your unconscious brain has no choice. It's like a sponge. It takes in whatever it's fed. And that means if you're repeating something all the time, if you're seeing something all the time, that subconscious part of your brain just accepts it, whether it's true or not whether it's helpful or not, it doesn't care because that's not the reasoning part. And then suddenly you've got this program that now feels like it's running your life. And this is where we feel we can't change it. And it's not that we can't, we absolutely can because the brain is plastic. It's just that most of us have never been taught how or what is actually going on for us to be able to understand that it's not as hard as you think. Yeah, I, there's uh, a book that I've read or listened to a few times and it starts with the line don't believe a thought you think and really? it's so true because our thoughts they lie to us and sometimes yeah. they've been born because it's actually been protecting us and keeping us yeah. safe and that is ultimately what our body and our brain's job is to do is to keep us safe right. so in my experience and I'll be interested to hear your experience in a moment Vicky but in, in my experience it's been 
I'd, I've been drinking alcohol for so many years and that had been a massive mask. And I didn't realize that. And then when I stopped drinking, all of the things that I'd been masking before came tumbling out. So the thoughts and the, and it was really to shut the, the thoughts up and just to try and control it in a very unhealthy way. And I know that obviously you've got lived experience with um, addictions and that's why you do the work that you do now. And it's, I think, probably one of the reasons why you are so great at it as well, because you've got something to reflect back on and use that experience to help others. Yeah. And, and this is, I mean, it's so important that when people are understanding that there is there is a lot of help out there, but it's how do you know where to go and who to go to and 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 why do we even drink in the first place? You know, because most of us don't automatically start drinking as oh I think I'll shut my brain up and stop the thoughts that I'm thinking that's that's not why we start and nobody starts with the intention of becoming dependent on it and um you know I don't use the word alcoholic I hate it I think it's not helpful in the slightest but your body physiologically becomes dependent on it and you create a habit um you know and so you've got those two things going on which are separate but intertwined because you can't separate your body from your brain and your thinking so physiologically there's there's changes going on and also the actual pattern of us starting to to drink and go oh this works whether it's that whether it's after work and I deserve it I need it to relax or whatever it is Mm. or it's something that you just do on a weekend but you do it to excess because well, everybody else is right and then suddenly you find yourself in a situation where you start going well what if I have one on my own you know is is that okay and ooh, what if I have one at lunchtime and then we start rationalizing it well if I go out for lunch on a Sunday lunchtime well I drink during the day then so so that must be okay and all of a sudden we start to and we don't realize why we want more and it is physiological but also as you said it is to try and shut off the stuff that we don't really want to be thinking about. Or it might be more often than not, it's not actually the thoughts, it's the feelings. Yeah. It's the feelings. And this is, again, what helped people to understand. A feeling doesn't just come from nowhere. It starts with a thought. So every feeling has to start with a thought. So thoughts create feelings, and it's the feelings that we're not comfortable with. Whether that's feeling like we don't belong, whether it's feeling like we're in a situation that is not really us and, and we need something to just help us to, to be somebody else, put on a mask, which is what so many of us do. But that's really what it is. It's just to change those feelings or to try and just turn them off completely. Mm-hmm. Which And here's the thing, and this is why, you know, when people look at those of us who've been down the road of addiction as if somehow there's something bad about you or weak or flawed, it's like nobody sets out with the intention of becoming addicted, right? Not, no. We do it because it works. And when you understand how your brain works, that's how our programming is. If, if, some, if we do something that makes us feel better, the brain remembers it as a particular part of the brain that remembers it. And so the next time you feel that feeling, your brain goes, hey, I remember this. You remember what you did last time? Well, you had a drink. Well, do that again because it worked and it made you feel better. And so you go, oh, yes, that's a good idea. Guess what? It works again. So your brain goes, see, you've just now reinforced 
that pattern of thinking and feeling and so suddenly this is now what you do and it becomes automated the more times you repeat it the more automatic it becomes everybody knows that we all do it when we brush our teeth yeah yeah we all do it when we pick up a pen to write we don't have to consciously go Ooh, where do I put my fingers when I'm holding a pen? How do I put the pen on the paper? We've been through all that so many times. We do it without thinking. It's exactly the same when it comes to our patterns around food or around shopping. We get into this habit pattern that then in itself becomes addictive. (laughs) And it's where there's often a crossover with OCD because you know, a lot of people then have this this pattern of behavior where alcohol is a part of it, but also so is this and so is this. And then we get all of these different triggers and associations. So when I do this, well, then I have to do that. And if I and if I don't do that, I'm going to feel uncomfortable. Oh, no. If I feel uncomfortable, what do I need to do? Oh, I need to have more of this. But then when I have that, I have to do this. And then all of a sudden you've got this crazy cycle going on where the addictive process that when you first started doing the thing, worked made you feel better now it becomes a problem and that's usually when people reach out for help when they suddenly realize it's not now helping me to feel better it's now almost taken on a persona of itself and how the heck do I get out of it yeah and I don't think you you just don't realize until you're right in it and something happens to make you realize that actually I don't want this for myself anymore there's more for me out there and it's it's so common so common but that I mean that is what happened with me to some extent because you know I got praised for clearing my plate as a little kid I got praised for not being a picky kid you know so so and a lot of families do that right it's not unusual um but for me I didn't realize that I'm a a personality, highly sensitive person who picks up on things, who picks up on other people's emotions. And and there was feelings that I didn't understand that were going on. And I come from a a family where they weren't, feelings weren't spoken about. We didn't do hugging. It wasn't wasn't a natural thing to have that contact with, with parents. Emotions weren't spoken about. It was very much get on with it, work hard, put the effort in. The expectations that I had in my head, true or not, uh, from my father were were huge. And if I didn't achieve those, I felt not good enough. And without realizing, even as a little kid, I started to turn to sweets and sugar to feel better. You know, so as young as five, I was doing it. And I was really fortunate that the way that, our our house was when I was when I was little is it actually the door to our dining room opened into our shop which was the equivalent now of an independent supermarket but by then it was it was the local shop that my dad owned that sold everything and it did frozen food groceries you name it it was I mean he started off as a green grocer and then morphed into frozen food and all kinds of stuff but so food was a big part of our family. But literally, if we ran out of everything, oh, just nip next door, you we could get anything, wow. any packet yeah. of cereal you wanted. It was like a kid's, like, amazing. This was my own shop. You know, when you used to play shops, I had a shop. Come right? true. <laughs> literally. And of course, round the back of the counter, so the door would open to the back of the counter. And that's where all the sweets were. And, and we used to do penny mix-ups. So we had all the little sweets there where you could 
you know, and I would go in and I would steal them, you know, yeah. as young as five years old and not realizing that I was already becoming addicted. And then guess what? I used to take little bags to infant school and give them to friends. And what did that buy me? Friends. They liked me because I was the one with the sweets. Little did I realize at the time, I just thought I fitted in. Yeah. But I was ginger haired. I'm a bit blonde, I know. But I was I was very much ginger and very freckly and kind of milk bottle white skin. In comparison to everybody else, I was tall for my age back then. So I already knew that I was slightly different. But it's only when it came to things like going for swimming lessons that I realized that my tummy came right out. And when I sat down, there was little, there was a little roll. And my friends didn't have that. And that's where you realize that suddenly you're different and you don't quite fit in. When we used to do PE, my legs, because they were so white and I was ginger head, for those of you of the same color, they were bright red. I mean, properly beetroot red and so yeah. did my face, right? So I used to try and prove that I was really fit by practicing to run really, really fast so that people didn't think it was because I was unfit. So even at that young age, about six or seven, every playtime I was getting out the skipping rope and I was getting out elastics. So let's get moving, let's play this, let's play that. Because I wanted to prove that I was fit and I wasn't fat. So even in my young age, there's always there was already that kind of programming of fit is lazy, you know, and nobody ever said the word fat, but they always said, well built. That was the phrase that I used to hate. Oh, she's well built. Mm. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, really. Um, and, you know, what? one of the things I remember hearing my mom and my grandma talking about was puppy fat. Oh, it's only puppy fat. She'll lose it. Yeah. You know, and, and I was just like, so this is obviously bad. This is not good. I shouldn't have this. And, you know, when I started ballet dancing classes, that's when I really realized there was all of these young girls who had, you know, washboard, pancake, flat stomachs in the little pink leotards and little skinny legs. And my thighs touched, you know, and they crossed over when I walked and I had this round belly. And it was like, I stopped going. How old was you then, Vicky? I think I, I think I stuck it out for two years. So by the time I got to ten, it was like no. That's outrageous, isn't it? Thinking yeah. like your body image at that age, it shouldn't even be a thing. It yeah. should just be I am a child having a childhood. Yeah. But obviously, society as a whole feeds into this concept that there has there's a right and a wrong way to appear. Yeah. And that is yeah. so, so wrong. Yeah, I, I think it's such an important thing to talk about because we all have this idea, or we think we do, of what we should look like. But it's based upon what society feeds us. Absolutely. Uh, where the, and, and this is, you know, this is a tricky one because a lot of people ask me the question, well, do people have disordered eating and want to change their body shape and size through manipulating food, whatever that looks like, whether it's anorexia or or bulimia, or being orthorexic, where it's like, I'm not putting anything that's not absolutely perfect and clean in my body, whatever it happens to be, if we're trying to change the way we look, it means we're trying to change something externally, which really, we hoping will change the way we think and feel about ourselves. But when we look around, you can't help but notice if, if you are bigger, you can see it, you look different, 
to to other kids and kids are cruel yes and because you don't fit in because you're not part of the sheep you know you don't follow that little flock they will tease you whether it's your hair coloring or your skin coloring or your size it doesn't matter if or your accent if you've got glasses and nobody else has you know, and I was in a little school where literally there was 42 kids in my infant school when I left. It was in a tiny little village in, in the north of, of England in Huddersfield. And, and you know, it, it was tiny. So everybody just knew everybody else. And anybody who was different stood out. Now, the thing for me was everybody knew who my dad was, though, because he had a number of shops in the town. So I kind of stood out for the wrong reasons and the right reasons. I was known. Oh. But... That really was not helpful when I started drinking <laughs> because no. if we'd get back to my family about what I was doing and where I was um, and, yeah, not in a good way. So no. always say, there's always someone watching and someone is always happy to grass you up is what my yeah. aunt always said. Yeah. And it's true. Yeah. <laughs> it's so yeah, true. Absolutely. And I would get, you know, conversations like so. Did you have a good time at blah blah last night? Can you remember it? And that's when I started to realize that I had blackouts. And I'll be quite honest, I when I went into rehab, I didn't know what a blackout actually was. I thought blacking out was like passing out. That's what I mm-hmm. thought it was. I had no clue what a blackout actually meant. But obviously now looking back and when somebody explained to me, I was like, oh my God, yeah, I was having them all the time. <laughs> but, but I didn't know, you know. But food started me off on that road of 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 trying to use something external to feel better about myself. And to be quite honest, at that time, I didn't know what it was I was trying to feel better about. But I now know that there was a lot of other stuff going on. There was a lot of thoughts and feelings that I I was just really confused about because my mum was mentally not very well and she was in and out of psychiatric hospitals. My dad worked crazy hard hours and was building his business. So he was never around. And when he was, I was scared of him. Um, I was scared of him because of his high expectations and never feeling good enough. So there was all that going on. But my focus was was on not knowing I couldn't change any of that because you do it when you're little. I just thought, well, what can I, I can change what I'm doing. And so I started going, I started on a diet, right? I didn't have this idea that I want to be tiny and thin and skinny. I didn't have that idea. But I knew that I wanted to be smaller than I was. And that's what set me off. And that that really was about me wanting to fit in and not feeling like I did, particularly when I transitioned to secondary school. And this is something that's so important because the body image stuff started obviously when I was younger. I think you can handle it more when you're little. It's when you get to sort of 11, 12 and into your, into your early teen years and you're starting to develop, you know, and I, I started my period at 11 and you, you, those little training bras, I was wearing one of those at 11. Wow. And, you know, so for me, it was like, well, <clears throat> when I went to secondary school, A, it was massive. I mean, it wasn't actually, but it was massive compared to what I was used to. <clears throat> and suddenly there was all shapes and sizes of people. Suddenly I wasn't the tallest in the class. Yeah. Suddenly I realized that I was quite big in comparison to other people. I'm broad. You know, I, I'm not. I'm not somebody who's very slightly built, right? I am well built, if you like, big built. I've got a big rib cage. I haven't got particularly big hips, but I, I'm I'm quite 
quite stacked, if you like, on the top. <laughs> People say, oh, you look like you're about a size 10 on top. And I went, dream on, 14. <laughs> right but because I'm kind of in proportion and and how I dress people don't know but you don't get that when you're a kid so you look at people's clothing sizes and you do when their blazers are hung up and you're like okay so my clothes are bigger than everybody else's and I think the thing that really did it for me was when we went to get my school uniform for secondary school they gave us it was a private school they gave us a, a list of where you could go to buy the uniform and we went in to get a skirt with my mom, and I'll never forget this. How many? I mean, I'm talking what? I was 11. I was 10 actually, seven and a half, and I'm and I'm now 53. And it's still, I can still take myself back there and feel the embarrassment of going in and being measured, and her saying, "You'll have to pick a skirt out from the women's range. We don't have any in the children's range to fit her." Oh wow! Yeah, and that was like, I mean, I could feel the beetrootness just rising through my head and my poor mom looking back god I don't know how she handled it I mean she did she just went okay then we'll go to blah blah and she she just like got me out of there and I I can't remember where we went and it's a blur after that obviously I did get a skirt but but that was just if you like reinforcement that you are fat you are bigger than everybody else and you need to change. So when we all started on a diet together, I was like, yes, I want to do this. Because of my low self-esteem and this idea that I needed to do it, but I also had this powerful urge. And this goes across the board with everybody I work with who has disordered eating. We want to be better. Yes. We don't just want to be better than, than ourselves and what we are right now. We want to be better than you and you and you. We want to be the best, right? Yeah. And that's a massive driver, which utilized and harnessed is fantastic. That's what a lot of entrepreneurs do and why they're entrepreneurs, right? But if it's driven in the wrong direction, it's not helpful. And it can lead to a lot of arrogance Mm -hmm. and a lot of grandiosity. And that was me not realizing it. So I wanted to be better than. So I didn't want to just lose weight on this diet. I want to lose more weight than everybody else. Not competitive at all, then, Vicky. Not competitive in the slightest. <laughs> yeah. And and this is, you know, and then that's a story that I realised when when I put down alcohol and I was running my own fitness business here in in London. I don't. I was already doing that in in um, in Yorkshire before I moved to London. But when I put down alcohol and and was really getting into it and, and building up that business, and I realised that I'm ridiculously competitive to the extent that. I have had so many injuries because of it and I can't run anymore. I used to run um, 10K races and I used to run half marathons, but I was just so competitive on overtraining in such a, a ridiculous way that my running days are over. So, yeah, it was, it's not helpful. And even though I dealt with it in rehab and I, and I knew that that was a trait, it was still in there. And it still comes out, you know, to this day in, in different areas. There's, there's a part of me that wants I want to be better. Makes sense. And I think that sometimes we've got a bit of a monotropic, especially autistic people have a monotropic um, outlet. And when we pull that from an addiction, an addictive personality and put it into something. So I'm going to put this focus on to stopping. I'm going to put this focus on to not drinking alcohol, to being a non-drinker. I'm going to focus on 
everything on having a diet and making sure that my temple, my body has nothing but the best in it, the water, all the foods and all the good things. No, 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 nothing bad. It's when we can actually use that focus. And that's when we can see amazing results and people go, how have you done that? Yeah. Especially in other areas, not just addictions. Exactly. But that's the shift in your mindset. And that's you understanding because the the way that you describe that that's your vessel you obviously respect your body and you want it to work well for you but when you've got a really poor body image and your body doesn't look like you want it to it doesn't do the stuff that you that you want it to we hate it we hate our body right and we don't love it at all we don't treat it with respect we 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 punish it a lot because we're trying to change it and it's not doing it It's not doing it fast enough or it's not doing it in the way that we want. And so what do we do? Let's go harder. Let's go more extreme, right? Which then increases the pressure and the anxiety, which then is going to either take you to turning to something else. So all of a sudden you've got more than one addiction. Hence mine was food and alcohol. Yeah. And because, you know, why, why just have one when you can have two? Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) You know, realizing that actually the whole food side of things for me was just got so manically out of control that the anxiety and the feelings that I had around that were were so heightened that the alcohol would damp it down, which is, which is what you've said. So now I've got the two patterns of behavior Mm. happening and actually they worked quite well together because in my head and this is how crazy the addictive thinking is that if if I'm getting calories from alcohol well I don't need to eat food do I I lost a lot of weight when I stopped drinking alcohol a lot of weight and I went down to an unhealthy size right because I wasn't getting those empty calories in the evening yeah yeah and and then suddenly so and then also if I did overeat uh, because you know I'd fallen into that picking up a trigger food and then not being able to stop in my head oh alcohol makes it so much easier to throw up <laughs> so win-win in, in I mean but and that's the crazy bonkers thinking that you have but it was all about trying to fit in initially to look better to be attracted to boys yeah. because I was teased thunder thighs yeah. And unfortunately, it is so prolific amongst youngsters who are autistic and neurodivergent. Yeah. They turn to food or they restrict their intake because actually that's something that they can control. Exactly. And when you go through your life feeling different, some people know why. Some people have a diagnosis. Some people don't. Yeah. And this isn't specific to autism. This is people as well. But I've seen it a lot within the community. Mm. And it's is that control. And you can hide it so well as well. And I think it's one of those things that I'm writing a book at the moment, which you know, 42,000 words in now. Yes. And one of the yeah. chapters is about, it covers one of... Um, Sorry, one of the chapters goes over anorexia as well. And she had athletica anorexia. So as well as the the food and the calorie restrictions, she was doing a thousand leg presses, a thousand crunches, a thousand this and that every single day before she would allow herself that polo. Yeah. And then she would hide her 
decline in size, her small size, under lots and lots and lots of layers, which she still finds ironic because so I want to be this small, small person to fit in. And now I'm going to bulk myself up with lots of layers so that I don't stand out for being too small. Yeah. <laughs> right. And this, but also, and this is what a lot of people don't understand. When people are that thin, right, you are cold. You are cold a lot of the time. You've got no you know, reserves, I, have you, and, there, by that point? And, yeah. And so the layers make sense. So they, they help twofold. They keep you warmer. Um, and that I must admit, so, so for me, you talked about it, you feeling in control. And yeah, that's what I wanted. I wanted to feel in control of my food and to be able to lose weight. But I, but I couldn't. I wasn't in control. No. I, I was out of control and I used to binge and overeat. But I, didn't, but I, didn't, but I needed to lose weight. So that's why the bulimia for me was the way to go because I could eat the food so I could get the pleasure. I could get that dopamine hit right, of eating the foods that I wasn't supposed to be eating when you're on a diet because bad foods. Yeah. Um, but then I could get rid of it. So not only do I get the dopamine hit from eating the food, even though you're not really properly tasting it because you're just shoving it in, right? You then also get a dopamine hit from throwing up. Now that feels weird, but you do actually get the same kind of effect from getting rid of it because it's a release and you feel empty and you feel free. And this is where, and this is where people kind of go, what? So actually throwing up then becomes another addiction. Yeah, it, make, it makes sense to me. I can see it. It's, it's yeah. not logical, but it's it not. makes sense. I can see why. Well, biology and chemistry are not logical. No, absolutely <laughs> Neurotransmitters are, are not logical. No. But, but this is, again, you know, even though, and this is the crazy thing that you were saying about your 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 lady who, who was getting to the size that she wanted to be, but then your brain gets skewed. So this her body image still isn't what she wants it to be because now she's perceiving herself still not to be thin enough. Mm. And, and so it's like, Okay, so you're doing what you said you wanted to do, and now you've reached where you said you wanted to be. But guess what? You still don't feel good because it was never about the actual size of your body. It was about your feelings, yeah. about yourself, and and who are we as people? And this is this is a question that I often pose. You know, who are you? Who is Nikki? Mm. Well, Nikki's a name, exactly. Right? Yeah, but that's not a person, right? Nikki has this skin and bone sack, right? But that's not what Nikki is, skin and bone. So she's not a name. She's not skin and bone. What? Who is Nikki? It's a good question, isn't it? It is a good question. And this is where you understand. It, it's about who you are being in the world. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but when you've got your focus is purely on your body image, and let's face it, body image is – a lot of people say, well, it, it's – People worry too much about what other people think, but it's not body image doesn't actually just stem from what other people think of you. Yes, it's a big part of it, but it's what you think of you and how you feel when you look in the mirror and you see you. It's that's really important. And, you know, trying on clothes size. And I mean, that's a bloody minefield when you when you have so many different stores and so many different clothing sizes. But if in your head your body image of a slim person is a specific size and you go into a different shop and, it, and you're not that size, you're a bigger one. Mm -hmm. It's Suddenly you've got fatter, which is not logical. Obviously you haven't, but that's where your brain takes you. And this is how powerful body image can be and how skewed 
it can be. So if you're reading something on Instagram or Facebook about, you know, size zero. Yeah. You automatically go, oh, I need to be that. Forget the fact that you might have a frame that's as big as mine and I'll never be a size zero, right? Just because of my bone structure, it's impossible, right? It would be absolutely impossible unless I had, you know, some of my ribs removed. It's never going to happen. But this is the extremes that people will, will go to in this belief that if I look like that, I will be like them and I will feel good. And the reality is, it doesn't happen. Just yeah. doesn't. Yeah, I, I remember actually going to certain shops knowing that the sizes were smaller because of the cut. Correct. But I didn't see it like that back then so I've actually stopped going to those shops I have actively avoided them because I knew that I wouldn't be I was a 10 back then I knew that I wouldn't fit my backside into a size 10 and they'd probably come halfway up my thighs and I'd feel really dejected and feel really bleh so I just avoided it altogether so it yeah I, I totally get that. So what was your sort of turning point, Vicky? Because obviously you're doing what you do now. So what got you on the pathway to sort of getting rid of these addictions and getting that control really back in your grasp? It's a really good question. And I, and I love to say that there was this moment of epiphany that I had. There wasn't. No. But actually, there, there wasn't. What happened for me is, is a number of events that kind of led to, to something that um, ended me up in, in rehab. But with the whole food side of thing, I was very fortunate. When I decided to become a personal trainer and, and um, exercise instructor, uh, I started to learn about nutrition. And what I really wanted for my body, and again, it's back to body image, the magazines that I used to buy and used to read were were a lot of the muscle and fitness ones. I don't even know if that's still a magazine that's out there, but muscle and fitness and, and stuff like that, where these were, were women and guys who you could visibly see the six pack. They were lean, they were strong, they were fit. They weren't massive, huge bodybuilders, but they were, but they were athletically fit. And I was like, if if I could look like that, I'd be happy. Yeah. So that's what I aspired to do. And so I, I went to London from the north and did a, a, a really intense course, came back, walked straight into a job in a gym. Now, on that course, for the very first time, we were taught about nutrition. And I understood a little bit about if I wanted to get that kind of look, I did actually need to let my body have food and keep it in, <laughs> right? And have nutritious food. So for me, that was a shift to help me to get out of my alcohol issues but part of that then meant that I actually started to drink more because I was uncomfortable with the fact that obviously I'd I would I'd gone from a very tiny size with threats of being hospitalized and force fed because I was dangerously thin to then being what why I was it's still a ridiculously thin weight but I, I stayed at around a seven stone mark for quite a long time that was in my head my ideal weight Right. It's not for my height. My ideal weight is nine, <laughs> so that's that's a discrepancy. Yeah. But what happened was I did allow myself to eat, and I got into the fitness world, and my body did find its its happy sort of weight. But because I didn't feel still good enough in myself, and the image in my head wasn't that of an amazing looking athletic fit fitness instructor, I drank more. So, so the food side of things kind of took a little bit of a back seat. So I was actually eating food. I was still very ridiculous and I did still throw up, but nothing like I was doing. Um, 
But for me, it was a, a situation of, of over time where I actually prayed to be an alcoholic because in my head, I said to myself and the universe, if I could just be an alcoholic and not a food addict, it would be so much easier because you can give up alcohol, but you can never give up food. That was my logic, right? See that, yeah. yeah so, so guess what? That's what I got. I, I, got, I got the whole receive. Yeah, exactly. But fortunately, I got to the point where for me, my I'd lost, I'd finally been sacked for the first time ever in my life from uh, being a freelancer in the gyms because they smelled alcohol in my breath and somebody had complained. And by this point, I was I was really bad. I was functioning, <clears throat> but I only just on copious amounts of food. And what people don't understand is when you, when you're that addicted, you physiologically have to have alcohol to actually just get out of bed and function. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so for me, that was like, okay, so I had a period of time where for that, it was six weeks from me, from me not having work and me ended up in rehab. For that whole six weeks, I was trying to fathom out in my head how I could kill myself and my daughter. Right. Because my parents had basically said my parents had split up ages before that. So my mum, my mum was really not well um, in a nursing home. My dad, with my stepmom, he, you know, they'd been together for a long time. Basically, when I came down to London, they were like, "Thank God she's gone, hurrah! We don't have to worry about it." But what they said to me was, "If anything ever happens to you, don't expect us to take care of your daughter because we won't." Oh wow! Now, to me, that was a big slap in the face. At the point of it, I now realise they were trying to scare me out of of what I was doing and 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 give me a motivation. It didn't help. It just made me hate them. Yeah. Um. So so in my head, they were not going to help. And the worst thing in my life would be that if I died, she ended up in some kind of care system. With no right. So that that would be my nightmare. Or if I tried something and she died and I survived. Oh my god, that would be my worst nightmare. This was my thinking for days. Yeah. And I was thinking, shall we do it on a train? Shall we do it on the motorway? Driving up and down the M1. What? Yeah, how can I do it? And then I was thinking, could I get a gun from somewhere? Where would I get a gun from? All of this crazy thinking was going through my head. And fortunately for me, this is where the universe stepped in. And uh, there was a weekend where I was supposed to be seeing family, bank holiday weekend. Uh, I'll never forget it, May 2005. And I was going to go up and see my dad. Um, and drive up and um, my, my the person I was with at the time and that relationship was a disaster so that was part of the reason I felt stuck but yeah. he decided he was going to come and I didn't know he was going to come and so we changed cars now my stash of alcohol I was literally drinking and driving by that point my stash of alcohol was in my car and he went jump in he said I said I'll drive and I didn't take it with me so up the motorway for four hours from London to Huddersfield, I had no alcohol and I started to get withdrawal symptoms. That's how addicted I was. Yeah. Ooh. Right. And that went on for basically two days. And the hallucination started that night. Apparently, I was trying to get out of the window in the hotel. Don't remember any of that. Um, but fortunately for me, uh, I tried to have a drink the next day because he said, you, you need to get some alcohol inside you. And just spontaneously, it came out. Now, if that wasn't a sign, I don't know what was, that this is your opportunity to stop drinking. So when we got back to Huddersfield, I wasn't drinking. And then the hallucinations were hitting me big time. Now, my biggest fear was that I was going to end up like my mum, be manic depressive. In my head, mental, be mental, right? That was a fear. It was a scare. So guess what I was given? That fear of feeling like I was going mad. Fortunately, my partner rang up my GP by on day five. 
and yeah and said um if we've got a problem what do we do and she just went right get her into the priory like now forget yeah. going back to get any clothes just jump straight in the car from this surgery I'm going to ring them now you're on the way and and it was touch and go for me for for 48 hours I didn't realize how bad it was um my blood pressure was tanking my heart rate was, <laughs> was through the floor and um they they didn't know they didn't know if I was going to survive and if I was would I be brain damaged um so so that is what happened so it wasn't an epiphany it wasn't a you know, I've come to my senses, I want to stop. It wasn't any of that. It, the universe stepped in and said, you're not in any position to help yourself, so I'm going to help you. Yeah, sometimes that, we need that divine intervention. Yeah, and unfortunately for me, it was such a relief. It was a complete relief. So when I finally came around and, and spoke to the psychiatrist and he said, so do you think you have an alcohol problem? <laughs> I just looked at him straight in the face and I went, duh. <laughs> oh what a question yeah, and he said, he said, we have two programs here one one is the kind of the anxiety um what I can't remember the name of it and and what have you and then this one is for the alcohol treatment and I went well obviously that one when do we start mm. uh, because I didn't know and here's the thing that I want to get across I didn't know where to go to get help and I just I hadn't a clue who to ask. I'd heard of AA, but again, it's down to perception. It's a bit like the body image thing. You know, AA is full of down and outs in my head, right? The yeah. fact is that there's doctors and lawyers and, you know, shop workers and, and anybody and everybody goes to AA. And yes, part of the treatment was going to AA, but I couldn't and I wouldn't have gone on my own. I, I just I just couldn't I wouldn't just just cognitively I wouldn't have been able to make that decision and find out when are the meetings and then go and then ha- listen to what they had to say it was already confusing enough when I was in rehab and in a safe space but to go there without any of that I couldn't have done it and um, so rehab was the saving grace for me and then fortunately the guy who was who was the head of the rehab at the time recognized that if I went back to the environment that I sort of created for myself he said, you go, you will relapse. And he said, physically, you cannot. Your body cannot cope. Now, that was kind of powerful enough for me to just yeah. go, okay, shit, this, this is serious. Um, and he said, my suggestion is that you, you, we have a place that we kind of affiliate with in South Africa, which you'll be in primary again for another month, and then in a secondary care facility. And I said, what does that mean? He said, you learn how to actually live without alcohol. And I was like, okay. So things like going to the supermarket and doing shopping without being no. drawn to that aisle, things like going out to a restaurant and, you know, just the simple things like, well, what do you drink if you, if you don't drink alcohol? I've been drinking since I was 13, you know, mm. and when I'd gone out for meals, I always was allowed a glass of wine. So just going out for a meal and not having a drink, that was huge. Yeah. You know? Yeah. You know, so, and, and this is where you know, I'm so fortunate that I, I was given that opportunity. But there is when I start to learn about the brain and actually what addiction really, really is. And that's whetted my appetite to realize that there was so much I wasn't taught in rehab and there's only so much you can do in AA. And I needed to find out how to actually help myself much more in depth. I didn't understand the damage that I'd done to my body physically. I didn't understand that that programming was still in there and needed to be dealt with right and you can't just do that through simply talking about it to a psychotherapist you actually need to do some work yeah and that's the difference and that's now why I do it because 
the help that I needed, I had to discover what I needed for myself. And now I've got that. That's why I created the BLAST method, which, which helps people to look at everything. Not this and then this and then this and then this, because if you're working on your physical body and you're neglecting your thinking, that's not going to work. If you're working on your language and you're thinking, but you're not looking after your physical body, that's not going to work. You have to do it holistically. You have to do everything at once, but you have to do it in a way that's not overwhelming because if it's too much, we create anxiety. And what do we do? We want to turn back to the thing that we're not doing anymore. So it's getting that fine balance of helping people. And this this is why I do what I do, because I understand it's a unique experience and everybody needs to start in a slightly different place depending on where they're at. But we need to look at the trauma and the thinking and all of the stuff that that got you to not being happy with you and how you look and created this dissatisfaction or dis-ease. Yeah. Yeah. So you need a you need to find the why and you need to have a why, a really good Correct. why to keep on track. <laughs> Which is what I said to you when we first spoke. Yeah. And I said, first thing you need to do is get clear on why do you drink and why do you not want to be a drinker anymore? And just that language that I remember saying to you, mm-hmm. we're not talking about stopping, we're talking about you being a non-drinker because it's who you are being, not what you are doing. That's exactly. the important stuff. Yeah, I still remember that conversation, Vicky. <laughs> it was very yeah. powerful, very powerful. Um, so what are you working on at the moment? I know you've just launched a six-week program, which is yeah. totally new for you. It, it actually is because um, normally I say to you, you need at least six months to, to work through you know, all of the stuff that I've just spoken about. So the BLAST method is a, is, a, is a program that you take steadily and slowly. But I know that there are people who would like to do something a little bit faster. So it is, um, it's my program where you can get alcohol and anxiety free because uh, drinking a lot of alcohol by default makes you more anxious. Just, just a fact, physiological fact, science fact. Um, So it's anxiety and alcohol free program and it's a six week program. However, it starts with one full day with me. So that is an eight hour day right so that's that's what you start with okay which means that we can rattle through quite a lot of stuff in one full day which then makes it much easier to then do what you need to do in that six week period and then obviously there will be follow-up after that I'm not going to just let you go after six weeks Mm. but if people are thinking oh my god it's going to take six months or it's going to take me a year or I'm going to have to be doing it for no no, doing the right stuff in the right order for you is the key. So, so yeah, that's that's the, my new offering at the moment, and I'm really, really excited about it. Uh, it sounds it sounds brilliant, and I think it, that having that day just allows you to basically come up with a list of things that you want to work through, and then you can prioritize it. I guess. Yeah, yeah, and it, it's so much easier than trying to get to a point where where you're kind of halfway through something and then. Yeah, time's up and you know, we've got to try and pick up next time well you never do so it means that I can get through your whole life I mean obviously there's there's some stuff that I, I need you to give me first otherwise that day could turn into two but if you if you do the pre-work and the pre-questionnaires I've already got a lot of stuff and you've already gotten out a lot of stuff which makes that one day in and of itself powerful and I do do just that day in and of itself for people who who know that they're not massively addicted, but they're just not happy with their relationship. 
with mm. alcohol. And I also do very similar with people who've got issues around food and eating and they've got a health issue that they need to address and they can't seem to change their eating even though they've been told to. So diabetic, autoimmune issues, people who've got IBS, that kind of stuff. Or if you've had a heart attack, um, I do that VIP for that because I can help you to, to fill in all of the holes that your GP just doesn't. Yeah. And um, not because they don't know, although a lot of the stuff they don't, to be fair, because they're just not taught it, but because they just don't have time. They don't have time. And um, so I can I can do that with people and help them to actually understand. Again, it's about understanding how your body works as a whole rather than mm-hmm. as separate systems, because we learn how the body works as separate systems, but that's not how the body works as separate systems. It doesn't. Exactly. Well, thank you, Vicky. It's been absolutely fascinating hearing you share experiences and the work that you do and the bits and pieces that we've dipped into. And what I'll do is pop your details down into the show notes below. And we can, anyone that wishes to have a look at what you do, the information will be there. So just for the audio um, version of this, how can people find you, Vicky? Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, people, you can find me. My website is very simply vickymidwood.com um, and you can book on there a call with me if you want to or just connect with me on Facebook. I am Vicky Midwood and the Addiction Eliminator on Facebook and on LinkedIn. Um, I am on Instagram. Uh, I'm not on there very often, but I am also on on uh, I'm Instagram and I do do a little bit on TikTok but if you want to, if you want to just drop me a message, it's Vicky at VickyMidwood.com. Okay. I'll pop all of that information below as well so that people can just copy and paste it and click into the links as they as they wish. So thank you again, Vicky, for chatting with me today. It's been a privilege to speak to you and just carry on the amazing work because you're changing lives and that is a very privileged position to be in. So thank you. And I hope that our listeners enjoy today's show. Thank you. Thank you. And for our listeners, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so you never have to miss an episode again. Thanks for tuning in to the podcast with Nikki Collins. Autism on.